this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I don't know about anybody else here, but uh, I love the snow. Anybody else excited that it finally snowed? Who are you people that are like, I hate the snow? Anybody? Anybody here? You should probably not live in Pagosa. <laughs> but I am so excited that it's finally snowing uh, because that means I get to go snowboarding. If I'm being 100% honest, transparent, a little bit selfish, it is one of my favorite things in the world. In fact, Kelly, uh, my beautiful wife, who was gone for two weeks in London having so much fun, uh, flew in on Thursday night when it started dumping into Durango. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, her flight's probably going to be delayed. It's probably going to be canceled because she landed at midnight in the middle of the storm. And we were trying to like figure out logistics. And part of my mind was thinking, her flight's probably going to be canceled anyway. I'm sure I could find a babysitter and I could probably go ride in this fresh storm. That, that, that was... That honestly was where my mind was, and then I realized, no, I really want my wife to come home, and uh, she did without hiccup. Props to the Durango airport. That pilot, I mean, landed in a pure whiteout. Cool. I don't know how they do it. Computers, whatnot. Uh, Wasn't delayed even. She was like 40 minutes early getting off the plane, if that's not a testament to the goodness of God. Um, But I did get to go riding yesterday. Uh, with almost like half the church. It was pretty cool. I don't know if that's happened before, but I invited Ben to go snowboarding, and then all of a sudden everybody was like, yeah, let's go snowboarding. I was at Tuesday Night Deeper Project, which you guys should come to because it's great. Um, I was like, hey, guys, who wants to go up on the mountain on Tuesday? And everybody's like, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I did the, the Nate thing where I just tell people, hey, you should go snowboarding. Hey, you should go snowboarding. And nobody ever takes me up on it. But this weekend was glorious, and uh, I saw many of your faces there, and we had a great day riding uh, the powder. This is all going to make sense here in a second, guys, I promise. (laughs) But while we were up there, uh, there was a lot of language that was being exchanged that uh, some of you might be familiar with, some of you might not be, but uh, we would talk about the stoke. How many of you guys have, have heard that language used? You know, the stoke. Uh, it's an old surfing kind of slang term. It, it refers to like the euphoria of riding on pristine powder and just like glorious day. We talk about the stoke. Uh, there, were, there was like phrases thrown around uh, yesterday like the stoke is real, guys. Like, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, Ben, who is awesome, I uh, asked, dude, can you feel the stoke? I don't know what I'm saying. It's just silly. And he's like, nah, man, my st- Stokeometer has been broken since we've had kids. Like, <laughs> and it really kind of got me thinking, like, uh, what does this even mean? Like, what are we saying? <laughs> like, I don't know. Is it, does anybody else ever pick up language just from, like, the crowd that you're around? Like, you start saying stuff, and you're like, why did I start saying that? I don't even know what that means. It's like silly slang that you might start saying. Or like, I say 100% all the time now, bro. Like, 100% for sure. I don't know where I picked that up. Who knows? My wife came back from England talking about tomatoes. Like, what? <laughs> it's kind of weird. 
But uh, it got me thinking about this word stoke. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I st find myself saying stuff and then realizing I don't even know what I'm saying, really why I'm saying it. And I get on this long tangent rabbit trail of like trying to figure out the reasoning why and where it came from and whatnot. So you're probably thinking I've lost it by now, right? You're probably thinking, okay, Pastor Nate has officially abandoned the scriptures and he's gone off the deep end. He didn't know what to preach today. So he's talking about uh, snowboard lingo and like surfer slang from the 1950s. Um, that's not the case. It, it's going to go somewhere. But I was thinking about this word. I was kind of pondering this, kind of wondering where it came into vernacular. And I did what any good scholar would do and go to Google. <laughs> And started thinking about this and started unraveling this because it, it kind of always frustrated me. Uh, we know the word stoke, like maybe you've used it to like stoke a fire, right? Anybody got like wood-burning stoves here? Like you take the fire poker and you, you prod and you poke and you add fuel to the flame. That's probably the most widely recognized definition of the word stoke. And I realized I was using it in slang earlier, but it is a real word, um, but we, we see this kind of definition here um, of stoke being used as a verb to add fuel to the flame or to stir up the flame, to poke, to prod. But I found it even more interesting going into the etymology of this word, kind of looking at the history of it and how it connects with the church. And especially in the sense of where we've been talking about the importance of the church and the gathering of the saints and the ecclesia of God. We've been talking about this. It, it came together really neat. And so I'm going to read some things here just so I don't get off track. But before it was used as a verb, like to stoke, to prod, it was an old English word meaning stock, or it, would, it was pronounced stock, S-T-O-C. In fact, there's a lot of towns you'll see like Stockend and uh, I'm assuming Stockholm, which is probably a different language. Uh, it all refers to a place. And in fact, in Old English, the word stock was used, um, to, used first to mark gatherings of places of worship, i.e. the church. It was this, this word that was closely associated to the church and the gathering place of the saints. And I thought that was so interesting, giving light to where we've been in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, I think it's fascinating that the slang language that we use on the mountain now, like when we're going to ride some deep powders, like, yo, I'm stoked, actually has this connotation. It has this connection with the gathering place of the early saints with the church. Um, and then it was developed into a verb from that uh, to mean to prod, to add to the fire. And I think it's so closely connected with what we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. I preached this two weeks ago. If you guys want to look back at any of our sermons, any of our podcasts, they've all kind of run together. Last week, Adam uh, preached a powerful word on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I thought I was done with this, but we're coming back. The Lord wouldn't release me from this. So we're, we're coming back to this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 24 and 25. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If I could give you like the Nate's New World's trend, that sounds like a, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's like a cult. Um, if I could give you my uh, annotated 
uh, version of this. It would be, uh, let's stoke one another up <laughs> to love and good works. Let's get stoked about doing good things and loving one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. I believe that this scripture paints a very clear picture for us. It's not that uh, we're to make church here, okay? We're to make this gathering, not just the attendance on Sunday morning, but consistent, um, but consistent, intentional Christian community. We've talked about that. We've talked about like church is more than just you coming on a Sunday morning and filling a seat. Listen to other messages about that. But, but really, the church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly of God, we're to make it a top priority, especially all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. The fact of the matter is this. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. This is a truth that is very profound in Scripture, and it, it, it paints out and it lays out in Hebrews chapter 10 here that we should be more intentional about our gathering. We should be more intentional about Christian fellowship all the more as we see the return of Jesus coming nearer. Can I tell you right now, this moment in history, right here, this, this kind of timeline, and I'm not here to kind of plot out like the, the mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib, give you some kind of interpretation or give you a date on when Jesus is going to come back, but I can say with certainty this, we are closer now to the return of Jesus than ever before in human history. We are closer right now than any other collective group of people have ever been to the return of Christ, who is coming to judge the world. I realize this isn't the popular, like, oh, this preach is really easy. It makes me feel really happy about Christmas um, <laughs> kind of a deal. Um, because I, I know this is Advent season, right? We're singing Christmas songs. We're celebrating the first coming of Christ the Messiah, who fulfills, like, all the prophetic notes in the Old Testament in, uh, in you know, being a virgin born to Mary, in Bethlehem, you know, we look at the prophecies regarding his life, his death, his resurrection, him coming uh, as the suffering servant. Uh, we could look at uh, Isaiah as the prophet, right? We've looked at, we did this just recently. The last book of the Bible that we read through in Deeper Project was the book of Isaiah. He's known as the Messianic prophet. It's filled with prophecies about the coming Messiah. But it's filled with prophecies coming about him that he fulfills in his first coming. And then there's some that just left us scratching our heads like, well, that didn't happen. So that has to refer to his second coming, right? Uh, because this isn't, this isn't fulfilled yet. And that's one of the things that can be confusing about Scripture when you read it, especially in the Old Testament where, well, you look at like uh, some of these things and people will point out contradictions. The reality of it is uh, there are two comings of the Messiah. He came once as the suffering servant, but he's coming again as the reigning king. And that's something that in this Advent season, as we remember the fact that Jesus came as a baby, in the fact that he came as a suffering servant, he came in humility and in uh, humanity <laughs> so that we could have relationship with God, um, that's beautiful. And it fulfills the Old Testament promises and shows us that God is keen to keep his word. But it should also stir urgency and a reminder in us that he's going to fulfill his promise and come again. This, the, 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 the glorious celebration of God coming 
as a man to reconcile man with God is awesome. And we celebrate that, and that's happened, but it should also stir up a reminder that he is, in fact, coming again. And what we do with his son in this interim time is of utmost importance, friends. We can't forget the fact that we're only partway through the story. And we celebrate the beginning, right? We celebrate the fact that he came once, but there are equally uh, if not more, references to Christ's second coming throughout the Old and New Testaments as there were about his first coming. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. These are Christmas verses, right? Isaiah 9, 6. For, us to, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. These are reasons to celebrate, friends. These are beautiful promises of Scripture, and it's important for us to remember these things. I'm not trying to degrade this. I'm not trying to slight uh, the, the incarnation of Christ in any sense. But in the first coming of Jesus, we recognize he filled and ticked all these kind of Old Testament prophetic boxes, right? We saw a lot of these checked, but there were equally as many left unchecked. Um, and don't take my math on that. I am not the scholar that has gone through like verse by verse and you know, checked those exactly. But I do know that there are plenty in the Old Testament that have not yet happened. Take Zechariah 14.4, for example. Uh, it says, on that day, his feet, this is talking about the day of the Lord, the day of his return. He says, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half will move towards the south. Like these are prophetic acts. These are prophetic signs that are going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. If we read Revelation 19.11, um, I'm going to read a couple verses here. I, I want you to see this because we have this picture of Jesus coming as a baby. And I need you to understand that that is beautiful. That is awesome. But when he comes back again, he's coming back not just as a babe in humility. He's coming back as a conquering king with all of heaven's armies in might and in glory. This is what the scripture says. It says here in 1911, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, linen white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With that with it he will strike down the nations, and he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That should inspire awe. That should inspire wonder into the hearts of his people. That should inspire a hopeful expectancy of his church that God is going to come in righteousness and make the wrong things right. 
The injustice that plagues society. The hunger that runs rampant. The, 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 the atrocities that exist around the world. They're not lost on a God that is just kind of twiddling his thumbs up in heaven. But he's patient and he's long-suffering. And one day he is going to come and make the wrong things right. He's not blind to the plight of his people. He's not blind to the suffering that exists on this world. He is eagerly waiting the day with patience, with long-suffering that we'll talk about here, where he will come and make every wrong thing right and make all things new. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. It's pretty cool. So I want to talk a little bit today about snowboarding. No, I'm kidding. I really, really have this on my heart, even in prayer this morning as we were gathered. I believe that there is an urgency missing from the bride of Christ about the work to be done, about our personal lives, (laughs) about the state of our own souls, Because we remember that he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a bride that is pure and blameless. And I think, honestly, if most of us were to really kind of examine ourselves, we probably wouldn't be super stoked if Jesus came back, like, today. There's probably a lot of stuff that we have that we want to work on and iron out, right? Anybody here a procrastinator? Anybody? Woo, some of you are procrastinating raising your hands right now. Uh, right? Uh, my wife was in London. Uh, I'll reference this multiple times. She was having a great time. Uh, and I had the boys, and I have a newfound respect for motherhood um, and every single parent in existence. Uh, bless, bless you. Um, but if I'm being honest, maybe the house got a little out of control while she was gone. I did my best to kind of combine it to just like areas of the house, but it just didn't happen. Um, And so Thursday, the day before her flight came in, uh, (laughs) can you guess what I did? I deep cleaned everything. (laughs) You couldn't tell now because the kids have been back. But, um, (laughs) I mean, I, I, I cleaned out all the undersides of the bathroom cabinets. I wiped down everything. I cleaned the oven and the, and the grill. I even seasoned cast iron. Like, I, I tried to do everything. I vacuumed, and it still was like, oh, she's going to be disappointed. I didn't dust. <laughs> like, no, not, not, not she, she wouldn't really say that. Um, I'm, I'm saying this because I did it, like, last minute, 12th hour. The snow started falling. I put the last thing away and then drove to the airport to pick her up. Kind of a deal. And that was great because I knew when she was coming home, right? I knew when she was coming back. But I think that there was something that existed in the mentality of the early church that we have failed to grasp because millennia has passed, is that the early church was gripped by this reality that Jesus could come back at any moment. And I know people argue pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, a-trib, all this stuff. But if you read the writings of the early church, They were very serious that God was going to come back, and they believed that it could happen in their lifetime. We're talking about like 20, 30 years post-Jesus' death and resurrection. We're going to look at some of that writing here. But I feel like we have grown so comfortable and so complacent as the church at large that we, we largely don't believe Jesus is coming back. 
Because, you know, there was a generation before us that wrote books that Jesus, like 88 Reasons Jesus was Coming Back in 1988. And then the guy wrote a sequel, like 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1980. And people still bought it. Like, what is wrong? Or, like, you got people, like, trying to figure out the complex math, like, numerology in the scriptures of, like, whoa, when's they're coming back? Guys, scripture is abundantly clear. We don't have any clue of when he's coming back, and we're not supposed to. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that if he came back tomorrow, if he came back today, we would be prepared for his coming. So I really don't give a rip about anybody's argument about trying to plot out like the prophetic timeline of when the rapture is going to happen. I really give, a, I really give some consideration to the state of your spiritual well-being if he were to come back right now, would you and God be good? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about like, man, did you say a prayer one time and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? I'm asking, is your life, the way that you're living it, pleasing to God? Or is it filled with an abundance of grief of the Holy Spirit? The actions, the thoughts, the things that you do on a perpetual basis. I want us as a church to refine one another that we might be pleasing to the Lord in all of our conduct and all that we're doing. I'm looking at myself here, examining myself, looking at the inconsistencies that exist in my speech, in my conduct, in my life, and saying, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want every aspect of my life to be pleasing to you. I know that there are people that desperately need the hope of the gospel. I know that there are people in this community, there's people up on those ski lifts. There are people that are coming to Pagosa that need the message of Jesus. There are people all across this globe, that's why missionaries go, because they need the message of Jesus. And, and frankly, we have less time now than we did yesterday. And so the urgency ought to increase. Does that make sense? Are you grasping what I'm saying this morning? I believe the early church lived with this very real mentality that Jesus could and would return at any moment. And that affected the church in a supernatural, in a very special way. And I so desire for that to, to grab hold of us. I so desire for us to awaken to the revelation that our time is limited here. That we're not in control in the cosmic calendar of, uh, of what's going to happen and when. None of, none of you guys, none of these mighty prophets knew that, you know, COVID was going to come. Right? Nobody's out here uh, calling down all this stuff that's happening and whatnot. And, and, you know, I believe in the prophetic. I believe that there is uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit and all of that stuff. But the reality of it is, I don't think any of us are living with the urgency that we ought to be. Myself included. So don't take this just as a hard-handed rebuke. I think you're all a bunch of sorry little Christians that just are bad. This is me saying, guys, I so want to be sensitive to the Lord's heart that I want to get in gear. I don't want to be, I don't want to be passively complacent. I don't want him to show up and me have to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, God, this is what I did for you. And he, he, he looked back at me and showed me what could have happened if I would have taken his message seriously. I want you, I want I to enter into this race of serving Jesus with a 100% onboard commitment. Not just kind of 
passively adding some Jesus to our life. It doesn't work that way. Because as much as it's not easy to comprehend, there isn't going to be a warning sign. There isn't going to be like a warning blast for Jesus to come back. Scripture is abundantly clear. He says he's going to come like a thief in the night. He says that his return will be unexpected. I believe those of us that are watching that will know the season, I, I understand that. But the reality of it is, his return, we're not going to know. We look at scripture and all that stuff. And so while, while it's not abundantly clear on how uh, exactly when Jesus is going to come back, any of that stuff, scripture is abundantly clear on how we ought to live in preparation for his return. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Don't worry, I'm not going to like pass around offering plates and say you need to give all your property and all your like money to the church or something like that because, you know, Jesus is coming back in two weeks and this isn't like a cult thing yet. Just kidding. Bad jokes, Nate. Um, first one, it says, uh, this is Peter writing. He's, he's written, a, he wrote First Peter, which is referenced here. Now he's writing Second Peter. He says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate, I've tried to stoke you, if we want to use uh, Nate's lingo, uh, to wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. Hear this. In the last days, scoffers will come. This is talking about people that will reject the message of the gospel and they will reject the notion that God is coming to judge the world. This is, this is, this is scripture. This isn't Pastor Nate trying to like preach an agenda. This is what the scripture says. They will say, these scoffers will say this, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. People are still saying that same message. And I believe the church is still saying that message. In the sense that they describe it with their actions and their attitudes to the things that Jesus asked us to do. They say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Peter was dealing with this like first century church. Not too far removed after Christ had risen from the grave and ascended to heaven and the promise of the angels was that as the way that you've seen him go, you'll see him come back on the clouds, right? You guys remember that? Uh, so this is not like too far removed. This is like a couple decades maybe that Peter is having to address this. How much more so do we need to address this now? They deliberately forget. I like that, deliberately forget. Have you thought about that language? I've accidentally forgot a lot of things. Like I forget where I put my keys all the time. I didn't, like, intentionally forget where I put my keys one day. Anybody, anybody struggle with this? They deliberately, they knew, and they chose to forget. They had knowledge of the truth. How many people in our culture, in our society, how many friends have we had walk away from their faith where they've deliberately forgotten what God has said? They've chose to say, you know what? 
I'm just going to throw that out of my mind. They sear their consciences. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment with ungodly pe- when ungodly people will be destroyed. These are the scriptures, guys. I know this is a happy Christmas service, right? Um, woo! <laughs> but this is, this is what God speaks. We need to take it seriously. In verse 8, it says, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. Oh, I love this. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the heartbeat of the Lord. That's his reasoning for waiting. That's the reasoning for him not stepping in and coming back at a moment and and, and establishing his kingdom and eradicating sin and suffering on the earth is he wants to give more time for more people to come into his kingdom. That's the heartbeat of God that we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the whole world, right? (laughs) That he gave his only son. This is his motivating factor, and it's his motivating factor when he first came, and it's going to be his motivating factor when he comes the second time. It's his motivating factor for why he's waiting, is that he loves his people, and he's made every provision and every opportunity for them to be right with God. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? Everything will face judgment someday. You and I, even under the grace and the mercy of God, are still going to have to give an account for what we've done. We're going to have to give an account for how we managed his son, in a sense. Don't take that like we're like, it's a business. What we did with Jesus and what he gave with us, and what he gave to us, we're going to have to stand and give an account. We're looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Verse 14, And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. This, This coincides with Hebrews chapter 10 so perfectly. Right? As we see the day approaching, as we grow closer to his appearing, as we grow closer to this day, uh, the, the, the culmination, the end of all things, as this happens, friends, we should closely watch our lives to make sure that we're holy and pure. We're living blameless before his sight. And we can't do that without one another. I, I need people to call me out. 
Um, you know, uh, I rode with Jill yesterday, uh, snowboarding Jill and Shannon. And, uh, Jill is great to me because she calls me out when I'm being a jerk. <laughs> she just doesn't have a filter, and I love this. Um, because, you know, like 10 years ago when I first met her, uh, we were playing Ultimate Frisbee. And I was mean and not very Christ-like and way too competitive and needed some things to change. And I feel like there was this kind of uh, perfect picture of Hebrews chapter 10 of stirring one another up, of, of being there, exhorting and edifying, where she's like, you're kind of a mean person when you're playing Frisbee, and it's not very Christ-like. And I've worked on that. I, I've, I've gotten better. You guys haven't seen me on the Frisbee field. But uh, recently, I promise, it's changed. But the reality of it is, friends, is that we need one another to see our blind spots. We need one another to call out our mess and call out our junk that we might be, uh, that we might live holy and blameless before the Lord. I love the fact that it's in the construct of community that we see this happening. And so we're to be found living peaceful lives. Anybody can live a peaceful life by themselves, right? But we're not called to do that. <laughs> we're called in the construct of community, in uh, living with one another, to live peaceful lives, to be pure and blameless in his sight. I was having a good conversation with a friend uh, yesterday. Justin, we were talking about holiness. We were talking about uh, you know, we we're talking about alcohol, we we're talking about smoking pot, all this stuff, because yesterday I had a guy confused that I was smoking pot and I was a pastor. I'm not, if you're interested, that's, that's not me. Uh, but we, it spurred on this conversation, and we, we talked about holiness, and we talked about the, the fact that so many people want to establish and figure out where the line of, like, sin and grieving God is, so we can know exactly like how close we can get to it and still be okay, right? We want to push the boundaries. We just want to know like, well, how close can we get to hurting God without actually doing it? And it's the wrong mentality to have, friends. The mentality that you and I must have is, I want my life to be so pleasing and surrendered to the Lord that it brings pleasure to him. I, I don't want to ask the question, how close can I get to hurting God's heart with sin? I want to run the other direction and divert my energy and divert my attention. God, am I pleasing to you? Is my life pure and holy to you? I want to ask the questions of, uh, of how close can I get to you and how pleasing can I be to you? Not so much so, how, how close can I get to the edge with being okay? I want that to be true of me. And I'm not here like trying to be some kind of legalistic like, like club beater. I don't know what you'd call it. But the reality of it is I want the desire and the motivation of my actions to be, is this pleasing to the Lord? Is my life right now, the way that I'm living it, what I'm doing, how I'm spending my time, how I'm spending my money, how I'm investing in relationships, is it pleasing to God or is it self-satisfying or is it self-fulfilling or does it have some other motivation? I want my life to be surrendered for the pleasure of God that it might be pure and blameless in his sight. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus talks about his second coming 
in this parable here in Matthew chapter 25 with a parable of wise and foolish virgins. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is an interesting story, and it's an interesting parable. And I think very simply, and I could outline kind of the, the spiritual, scriptural kind of interconnections here. But when we're talking about oil here, I believe we're talking about relationship with the Lord. Some people use the word like intimacy. Some people use the word devotion. What I, what I simply, you know, we, uh, Adam and I, we, we started using this word like five or six years ago called relational equity. We probably heard somebody smarter than us use it and we just like picked it up. We're like, hey, that sounds cool. Um, <laughs> but really it's like the concept is simple, like spending time with the Lord, having relationship with him that moves past just going to church on a Sunday morning, like knowing him. Um, and I think it's very clear here what we're looking at with this idea of oil and these bridesmaids is some kind of substance of relationship here with the Lord. And uh, if we have that in the background of our minds, we can look at this parable. We can kind of look at the context here. Uh, in a Hebrew wedding, what would take place was the bridegroom would come back at an unexpected hour to retrieve his bride. And the, the role of these virgins or bridesmaids, depending on your translations, that's what they were, uh, was to keep a lookout, essentially, for the return of the bridegroom. And they would light the way with their lanterns uh, for the bridegroom to meet the bride. And so we could go off into like the spiritual, scriptural responsibility of the leaders in the church and making sure that they have relationship and how they're pivotal and making sure that the church actually gets to her destination, all these different things. For the sake of simplicity today and the fact that I've already preached a message, essentially, I'm just going to highlight a few things out of this. And if you want to talk more about this parable because it's one of my favorite, we can. Uh, the first thing that I think is really important to note was both the wise and the foolish were identified as part of the bridal party. They were all identified as virgins. They were all identified as bridesmaids. If they were to take like the, like the census that we passed around uh, and check their like affiliation, they all identified as bridesmaids. In the same way, there are plenty of people in the church that identify as Christians, but there is a separation that comes. There is a determining factor. It's not just simply what you identify as, right? I saw a sticker on this guy's Jeep the other day that says, I identify as a Prius. I know that guy's still getting like eight to nine miles per gallon, even though he identifies as a Prius, right? 
That doesn't change anything. And you can identify as whatever you want. That doesn't change the fact that you either are uh, in relationship with God and in right standing with God or you're not. It doesn't matter what you say. It's not about being nominal or being in name only. It's really manifested by the fruit of your life. We understand that, right? So the second thing that I see here is that they all go through the appropriate motions here. Verse 7 says that those, all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. They had the exterior motion that everything was okay when eternally they were lacking oil. And this is something that I believe exists within much of the church, if we're being honest. We've gotten really good at putting on a facade. We've gotten really good at going through the motions. We've gotten really good at showing up to church on Sunday, maybe even to prayer on Wednesday night, going to Deeper Project, doing these things, and going through the motions of Christianity without having any substance to fuel it. And God is very much more concerned about the, the substance aspect than us just going through the motions and appearing like everything's okay. And you need to grasp this, friends. I really am not that concerned about you having the right language, about how many times you miss church, or any of that stuff. I'm concerned about the fact, is there substance to what you believe? Is there relationship that exists in your life between you and God? You see, oil does cost you something. We know that salvation is a free gift, right? We understand that in the sense that it was, it, it's, not a, it's a free for us, but it cost him everything, right? <laughs> and I, I think maybe we misconstrue some things when we talk about the free gift of salvation, that there's nothing that you need to do to earn it. Right? There's nothing you can do to earn salvation from God. You can't be good enough to earn his favor, earn his blessing, and somehow you know, uh, make it into heaven. We understand that. It's all based upon the work of Jesus on the cross. We're not denying that fact. But to have intentional relationship with God does cost you something. How many of you have ever had a girlfriend? Anybody in here? Yeah, okay. Some of you guys have. Uh, relationships are expensive, right? <laughs> guys, I, I, see, uh, I see girls laughing. I see guys. The reality of it is not just financially. Relationships take time, right? They, they take, if you want to have a healthy marriage, if you want to have a healthy relationship with your spouse, you have to invest time. There are things that cost you there are things you have to say no to in order for your relationship to work, right? In the same way with the Lord, if we want to have intentional, healthy relationship with him, there are going to be things that we have to say no to. There's a time investment that is required. There is a cost to this oil. There is a cost to this relationship. And so I used to like to say salvation is free, but relationship with the Lord will cost you everything. He invites us to lay down our lives. The message of the gospel is the one that we would take up our cross, that we would deny ourselves and follow him. It's not just to say yes to Jesus, check a box, say a prayer, and slap you on the back, and you're good to go out the door. Friends, if that's your idea of salvation, if that's your idea of what this Christian life is about, you're missing the point. Because it's so worthwhile. The relationship is so fulfilling, but it does cost us some things. It'll cost everything that you used to have. 
But what you gain in exchange is so much better. The next thing I noticed out of this was that you can't ride the wave of someone else's relationship. Foolish virgins wake up, they realize, oh, we go through the motions, we do the things, and then they realize, oh, this actually isn't functional. This lamp, this thing that I've built, actually, even though I put time and energy into it, it's not sustainable, it's not functional, right? They're like, give us some of your oil, share with us. And it doesn't work that way. You can have all the right pieces, but without this aspect of intentional relationship, what you've built is a facade. And it won't work. It's not functional. And when life actually happens, it'll crumble and it'll fall apart. (laughs) We see that happening left and right. Without the substance of relationship with the Lord, uh, it's worthless and it's pointless. (laughs) And so they give this good advice. Well, you guys should go buy some oil because we can't share ours with you. We'll be in the same boat. doesn't work that way. And this is something very clear that you need to understand, young people. You can't ride the relationship that uh, your parents have with God, right? Spouses, uh, you, can't, you can't ride the relationship that your spouse has with God. You have to intentionally invest for yourself into your relationship with God. If you expect your spouse to carry your slack for the fact that you don't want to spend time with Jesus, it is not going to work. They can have as much oil as they want, and it can spill off, and it can get all over you, and it can get around you, and hopefully provoke you for you to do something for yourself with your relationship with God. But the reality of it is, I can't have a close enough relationship with God that you're okay with Him. It doesn't work that way because he's intentionally designed it for us to be close with him, to have a personal connection with him. That's the reason why he came in the first place. That's the reason why he lived. That's the reason why he died was that we could know him and know him personally. In fact, that's what John 17, 3 would tell us, right? That this is eternal life. (laughs) that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's that's the words of Jesus there. Eternal life is to know God. What we read here is that Jesus says, depart from me. You had the right language even. You even said, Lord, Lord, you know who I am. You went through the right motions, but you missed the important aspect of investing into relationships says, I don't even know you. How sad. How sad are those words? People can go through the right motions. They can have the right title. They can identify correctly with the right, with the right religion even. But without relationship, without substance, without some kind of backing to what we say, he says very plainly, depart from me. I don't know who you are. But can I tell you, the good news this morning, friends, is that there is a way to know him. Because you're like, Pastor Nate, everything you said is good, but you know, I've been trying to do this Jesus thing. I've been trying not to sin. I've been trying to do this thing better, and it just seems like I'm spinning my wheels. Friends, I recognize that you, in your own strength, in your own effort, are never going to get there. It's important that we have one another. 
It's important that we're, we recognize that we're in this thing together, but we need his Holy Spirit. We need his empowerment. We need his provocation for us to, to, to really wake up and realize that the, the hour is urgent, that he is coming back. And I'm not, I'm not here to like preach this doom and gloom message that somehow like you need to just get your crap together. I said crap in the microphone. Somebody's going to be offended at that. That's okay. You got to get your life together. And, and the reality of this is I'm not so much concerned when Jesus is coming back, but I am concerned I want my life right now to be lived to its full potential that if he were to show up right now that there wouldn't be any unexpected things that I would want to hide from him. I, I once had somebody kind of explain it to me like this. If you were going to invite Jesus over for dinner in the door of your heart, are there things that you'd be trying to hide and shuffle and clean up before he entered in? Are there things that you don't want Jesus to recognize and uh, things that you would be offended by. Because if there are, friends, there's grace for him to deal with that here and now. There's no need to wait until eternity and offer up some excuse, God, that I was just this broken human and I had all these problems and I know that you're graceful and you're merciful and I believe in that. But I also believe that he empowers us to deal with our junk now. He wants, to, he wants to enter in and the struggles that you have, the inconsistencies that exist, those, those, those lies that you believe, he doesn't expect you to carry those all the way to eternity. There is grace here and now for us to become pure and blameless in his sight. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not going to say that you're never going to sin. But I believe it can be better than it is. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.